0: guys five movies this is morning co-host chris gasper this is frank pelicune you are listening to one of our return slot episodes and the feature tonight that we'll be discussing is fear loathing in las vegas from 1998 directed by terry gilliam written by gilliam alex cox tony grizzoni and todd davies it stars johnny depp benicio del toro toby mcguire christina ricci ellen barkin and a slew of a number of others and cameos such as Penn Gillette and Gary Busey, and, you know, so on and so on. Chris Maloney. Um, this is my, um, well, this is my third that I like threw out there for us to do. Um, Frank. And I mean, one of the reasons um, we're talking about this is because it's just, it's never made a list. And when we discussed it, it's because, and I think rightfully so, it doesn't fit anywhere. Like it's, mm. it's, it's like a weird, like, movie that's supposed to be a comedy but it's not a comedy it's like um like s- s- grotesque comedy I, satire but it has it has try it's trying to have social meaning like you know so it's like there's all these things going on and i just don't know i never knew where to put it and i don't know if you did either really
1: i i always thought it would have end up on like a literary adaptations list at mm-hmm. some point yeah um, um we don't um, do that kind of stuff that much but i figured you know right Right. out of deference to you like i would put it on one of those yeah
0: but now that we've started doing these um kind of deep dives um in the specific movies usually that we haven't watched in a while um figured this was a good opportunity for it um so this tom i mean actually I, I don't know if i know this go yeah go ahead Frank. can i
1: say something real quick yeah so this is not related to fear and loathing this is like peeling back the curtain stuff yeah so every time we start the podcast we give 10 seconds of dead air so you can i guess like adjust levels or something if Mm -hmm. you have to i don't know why Mm -hmm. we do it but it just has been Mm -hmm. happening for the past five years of my life and i just accept it Uh uh-huh but during that time in my head i am playing the podcast music but it's been so long since i listened to the podcast i have no idea what that music sounds like so here's my admission uh-huh. I always play the Wolfpack theme from WCW <laughs> in my head. Like during uh-huh. that 10 seconds to lead into it. So I'm always like Wolfpack is coming cause a mass destruction. Like as we're like rolling into the podcast. I, just, I, 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 I think that would get us hit probably if I tried to do that. Oh, right, right, right. I probably did too much there.
0: Um, <laughs> right. So I do just you, do you know what the spin Chagrin music is? Have you actually ever listened to a spin Chagrin to know what the intro music is? For that? I have no, I have no idea.
1: Yeah, I, hilarious. I I don't know. I always assume it's just put the money in the basket, <laughs> right? Because right, because that was a quick yeah. cage music. No, I, no I, a... just, I listened to a couple of quick cages, right? Yeah. Or that's, no, I, that's I that's
0: know. that's really funny that you don't even know what it
1: is. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like it's some kind of like slinky, like neo noir, like generic jazz, like boom 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 boom, boom.
0: Something no, like that no 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 it it actually would fit into like circus circus in this movie or something like probably like um no. like the it is like uh like, kind of like chaotic and um circusy like really? almost <laughs> yeah
1: well, just so just so everyone knows, it's the Wolfpack theme <laughs> from late 90s WCW is in my Oh Oh,
0: this podcast. Yes,
1: this podcast is kind of jazzy or
0: whatever, I guess you want to call it. But yeah, like, yeah. Oh, I don't know. Like, no, no, I thought that the spin chagrin is like very like, is like, yeah, very circusy. So,
1: buddy, yeah, I don't ever want to revisit any spin chagrin ever again. Like the ones, me doing it is enough right? in my oh, life. So right. yeah. never shall I. <laughs> um all right so this let's I, I actually i didn't ask you
0: this and I, I don't know like how how familiar are you with thompson like in terms of a writer like i mean did you read a lot of his stuff or just
1: like kind of the primary things like not on purpose um when i was young i bought a rolling stone essays collection from the library on like you know like a 50 cent book sale or whatever
0: mm-hmm.
1: um so i've read a few things and actually one of my favorite um joke insults is to call someone a doctor of torts (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. which
1: comes from a thompson essay about like a convention of lawyers or something that he went to in arizona i think i can't remember yeah um so i've read like that i've read fear and loathing um there's one that takes place in aspen i think right uh i mean yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that take place in Aspen, like just because, like, out of different essays, because he lived there. But I read the thing uh, with the with Nixon and football. Uh huh. When yep. you had me, like, yep. this is like 20 years ago. You had yeah, me. Yeah. Uh huh. But um, I have no nowhere near. The you probably right. read the Great Shark Hunt, is what I probably I know. Really I, oh, maybe I don't know. Like... Um, I have nowhere near the level of like familiarity with him that you do, and honestly. Probably less than what you even think I have really just because it's been so long since I've read any of his stuff.
0: Yeah, it's been a long time for me as well. The only thing that's kept me up, like, um since I was young was um when they released all of his letters and published them, um, in different volumes. And that kind of like sparked a lot of memories, because um, he would talk about his writing a lot. But um Yeah, so this movie was really pivotal to me. I I saw this with um, my friend Wesley in the theater, um, not really knowing much about Thompson at all. Like, I can't remember if he might have read Hell's Angels by that point or something, I don't know. But um, we saw this not knowing really much about it. We're, like, blown away by the movie um, itself in just, like, terms of, like, kind of, like, what the fuck did we see in some ways. And... I ended up going and reading the book and from there I just kind of, I don't know, like um, devolved maybe into like reading everything like Thompson's ever written um, around the age of like 18 to like 23, 24. And, you know, I've, I've read all of his letters. I've like pretty much like read, I think everything he's ever published. um, And, you know, I, I guess I became fairly knowledgeable about the guy um, in general and uh that just like i talked about tarantino before in the podcast like watching pulp fiction like in it like how it led me to old noir stuff and like thompson has like led me in so many different directions in life to some degree of like things that i know things that i've read that um you know i think it's like one of those kind of like key points for me at least is like having just randomly went to the theater and watched this movie because it had johnny depp and it looked goofy and um you know it ended up becoming like a major like you know part of my life i guess um so yeah i've always like wanted to like you know like talk about it and um you you reminded me that I always accuse you that you hate this movie (laughs) um I I forgot that I always do that um but um this is the first time you've watched it in quite a while right
1: probably 15 years or so
0: yeah and see I watch it at least like once every couple years probably I mean I've probably seen it like I've seen a lot of times in my life because I watched it a lot for a while um but, um, at least in the past like fifteen years, I've probably watched it every couple of years. um It's not a comfort movie for me, but it's something I will like go back to and and watch and put on um I think there's a comfort in knowing the movie as well as I do um but I don't know if it's a comfort movie per se i don't I think I'd probably be psychotic if it was a comfort movie right <laughs> um but um. So, yeah, so I'm going to open it up to you as having not seen it for a while and someone who, like, you know, can probably quote the movie um, in large chunks. Like, um, can you explain to me, like, you know, like how you felt about it, like when you first saw it, like when you were young
1: versus um, versus now? So we talked about this a little bit off air prior to, um, you know, doing our like prelim discussions or whatever when I first saw this movie, I was, it's, it's 97, right? Is that correct? Mm -hmm. So I would have been 21, you know, years old. Um, Mm -hmm. I was probably, I was a much different person and definitely lacked empathy or compassion for other people. Um, and I really loved this movie when I first saw it. Like I thought it was, uh, funny and innovative and, Um, blown away by Depp's performance and del toro's performance in it um i really felt like kind of a connection to the characters because i was heavily into uh drinking at the time like that was a big fact like feature of my life which is being drunk always um so i kind of had some i don't like i sort of saw myself reflected in some of their actions and whatever sometimes um, and I think that I was just okay with how negatively it portrayed, like, life and society, and, you know, I kind of was just, like, kind of bought into that, so I don't mm-hmm. know. And I loved Terry Gilliam at the time, um, you know, Brazil, Time Bandits, uh, two of my favorite movies when I was around this age, um, Baron and I loved, mm-hmm. uh, so, seeing it um you know seeing a terry Gilliam movie and maybe the first one i had gotten to see in the theaters i would imagine mm-hmm. um was also really impressive to me and i was uh, a big fan of it for that reason so yeah and what about now so i still find a lot of this movie to be super impressive from a technical standpoint mm-hmm. um i think I don't know if he's ever really lost it. Terry Gilliam is definitely like hit or miss for me anymore, Mm -hmm. but I still think one of the most important directors of the eighties and nineties that doesn't get anywhere near the credit he deserves for how influential he was and just how masterful he is at blending um, dystopia with fantasy kind of like pretty seamlessly in all of his movies Mm -hmm. where everything is every bright image belays like a dark underbelly kind of for Gilliam. Um, and I think that's definitely, you know, true for this movie. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm a much more morally conscious and centered human, you know, 24 years later, or whatever, 25 years later. Uh, so I am not, I, where I had some, I found some relatability in Raul Duke and um, Gonzo as a kid. I find none of that anymore. And I find kind of find them to be like despicable human beings, like start to finish. Mm-hmm. And I equated it to you to like watching hostile now mm-hmm. where it's like, except much more artistic, obviously. And with a lot more merit, but just, it's very, it was very difficult for me to watch this movie. I did not feel good watching this movie at all and it's one of those things where in the end I don't think I ever want to see this movie again. So so if I can tell you that I hate a movie that I love and think is amazing, then that's probably like this is the closest thing to it. Where yeah. like I absolutely despise certain aspects of this movie and still would sing its praises, you know, and we'll do so tonight, but so it's very complex. It's like a really um difficult relationship I think I have with this movie at present. So
0: Yeah um and you're uh, mainly talking about the behavior of the two principles right
1: like in terms of it's not only that it's also the way that and i think this is i'm not saying that this is bad in terms of like bad filmmaking it because it's definitely on purpose the way that gilliam layers um the superimposing of war imagery and other imagery over top of the actual elements of the movie. And layers like the dissonant sounds of like combat and whatever into the, you know, the ambient noise of this movie. Mm -hmm. And also just the way the camera angles he uses and the way that he manipulates through mostly practical effects or just in camera effects, your view of what's happening here. Mm -hmm. Very uncomfortable for me. Mm -hmm. And combined with the fact that I have not, like, I didn't, I never realized how abjectly despicable these two characters are like as leads mm-hmm. like the two principles that it really just caught me off guard um yeah so maybe that's the problem is that i haven't seen it in so long that i just forgot or never knew i don't know right um yeah i mean it's interesting because i
0: what was that that we were talking about where oh, it was it was the shining um where king what was king's quote on it that like Kubrick's version was a film that was attempting to cause pain or something like that like is, is that's one of the reasons he disliked it um i think there's something to that here i do think like i think the reaction you're having to it to some degree is 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 purposeful like to some degree it's like but it's like so it, in some ways you could argue i think that this movie is um grotesque in the fact that that is what it is trying to cause which is um disgust and discomfort and all those kind of things um and i do think gilliam does a really fantastic job of like accentuating that through like um wait, what did you talk about the chrome scene right like oh um, yeah so like that yeah. is a super fucking uncomfortable scene to like watch um oh yeah i mean yeah I, I i as i've grown older like i've i mean i still laugh, there's plenty of things i laugh at because i do think there's generally funny lines even if it is um gross behavior um at times but i mean one thing hunter hunter thompson from a from a writing standpoint like in a dialogue standpoint because i don't I don't really believe any of these things with, with the things that were like actually said like you know by these two people by these two people in real life really um and but it's like he has a way of like speaking that is like cuts and is harsh and gross and has a turn of phrase or a specific word choice that can make something a little comic um oh, and it's it's like jarring and off-putting and it's like it's that word choice and specifically or the way in which words are put together um is usually what still makes me laugh i often find myself when i re-watch it now kind of being like "Oh fucking hell like um after a particular scene or something like that there's a couple scenes in here that real that always bothered me and, like, it really bothers me now. P- specifically, the uh, Ellen Barkin scene. Um, the waitress hmm. scene really bothers me. Yeah, that's, that's me. the most
1: difficult thing to watch in the whole movie.
0: Yes. Um, but the
1: elevator scene is also almost as difficult, like, to watch for me. Um, yeah, but... yeah, because this dude's, like, a violent rapist, basically. And like, I don't know. Yes. Yes. Um, and I find it super interesting
0: because, like, the guy that... Uh, Benicio is playing in this, like you know, Doctor Gonzo, how he's called or whatever. Um, and you know, he references that he's smelling, which is from the book to hide the guy's identity. Like this was a real person. Like this is a, this was like so. If anybody doesn't know, like this was a real trip. Um, like with Hunter Thompson and um, uh, an attorney from Los Angeles, um, Oscar um, Zeta Acosta, and. Hunter Thompson was doing a piece on the murder of um, a member of the Chicano movement, Ruben Salazar, who was a media personality um, and a leader inside that movement. And um, he was shot and killed um, by police. And Hunter was doing the story. And because of the racial tensions at the time, they thought they couldn't really talk Um in the area, so they ended up deciding to take a trip so they could like be more relaxed to Los Angeles or Las Vegas. And that's kind of like the beginning of this film is them like you know on the road taking this trip. Um, the first half of it is that trip, the second half, it actually, even though they make it seem like it's a day or two later. It's, it takes to place, like, three weeks, four weeks later um, when he goes back to the convention with the police and attorneys and all those kind of things, like the law enforcement convention. Um, and then, like, when he goes back and sits down and re- when basically writes all of it, he starts – like, it's not – he recorded some of it, like, so he had audio of it, but it's, like, a lot of it is – remembering things while kind of blasted not as blasted as they are as they seem in this film but it's like he's certainly drunk and high like you know like during a lot of this um and it's like so some of it's based on memories and some of it's fabricated and it's like this weird mixture of like some things that really happen but it's exaggerated like most of it's exaggerated and it's like um so he's So I think, like, the dialogue in this, like, it's all just made up. Like, you know, and it's, like, it allows him to work some kind of twisted humor, I think, into the scenes through dialogue choices um, at times. And I still really laugh at that. But the – I don't know if the backdoor beauty scene happened or not. Like, that's, like, unconfirmed. Like, I, I don't know how bad Oscar really was and if he was like Gonzo. But I find it real fucking interesting that it's like he's portraying this guy who people in the know at the time knew this is who he was being based on. And he's putting this shit out there and like portraying him like that. So to some degree, I think some of it has to be maybe close to true. Like, I mean, I just can't see him like defaming a guy like that. That was his friend um, if some of it wasn't true. So it makes it super uncomfortable. Like, you know, I think from a personal standpoint, knowing all that, um, and then it's just a super uncomfortable the way fucking Gilliam films it and like the way it's like acted is fucking amazing, but it's super fucking devastating to watch those scenes.
1: Yeah. So here's my thing is that I had never really thought about this before, like at all, because I think when I watched the movie the first time, I just kind of viewed it as an adaptation and, um, I don't know, whatever. Just, Gilliam trying to really embrace the whole idea of like the gonzo journalism is just the craziness of whatever Mm -hmm. and exaggerated through you know the visual effects and whatnot watching it this time and this is like a whatever super obvious explanation but I had never thought of it is it's really just an evisceration of the whole the 60s and the peace and love movement and You know, I mean, he does that quite obviously during the whole wave speech or whatever Mm -hmm. that he gives. Um, But I think it's Gilliam's evisceration of it as well. Like, Gilliam piling on to Thompson's words that he already, you know, has... Like, they were already out there Mm -hmm. about peace and love and the end of the 60s. And, you know, you got this growing... I don't know, probably like universal dread that we still feel to this day, combined with like a almost ennui towards like war and whatever mm-hmm. that's going on with Vietnam. And the undercurrent of that is there in Thompson's writing, right? Because he's writing during the time that this happens. And
0: yeah, he's writing obviously wanted
1: like the height of the war. Yeah. Yeah. Like, obviously, you know, all the stuff. Yeah, because, like, there's
0: Kent State references that get right. made in the movie and stuff. Yeah, right.
1: Very, very much, like, in tune with, with the pulse of the time, maybe more than, like, anyone else. But it's different when you have all those elements, like, woven in. It, it It's one thing when it's part of, like a like, a narrative dialogue that you're getting in, like, a written work or whatever. It's another thing where it's, like, piled upon visually throughout the movie. Mm. And... I don't know. I mean, I guess, like, I never really thought about that before. It's weird because, you know, much more closely connected to Vietnam and the end of the 60s when this movie came out than I am today. Um, But I think maybe because there was so much shit that we saw around this time and in our youth about, like, the conflict in Vietnam and the end of, like, peace and love and, you know, whatever. I mean, I had read a lot about manson and all that shit like back then so i was kind of again maybe immune to it a little bit but Mm -hmm. just really made me uncomfortable with the way that gilliam like weaves those two things together and i don't know what
0: can you can you try to like probe that a little bit like what makes you uncomfortable about it exactly
1: because it's too much it's every we previously on uh Um, what do we call these return slot episode we talked about Scott Pilgrim and I mentioned that Scott Pilgrim is one of my big like comfort movies where I can just put it on and I enjoy it and it's easy for me to watch it and so when I was watching this movie I actually thought about Scott Pilgrim a lot because to me the thing that I love about Scott Pilgrim is it's a constant barrage of positive energy you know like it's it's nostalgia but it's comforting nostalgia it's like video game sounds and pixel art and like noise and music and imagery and it all does things that kind of is like soothing right and to me this is the opposite of that where it's all these terrible things woven together but there's no peace like there's no moment of respite during this fucking movie like the whole movie is just beating you constantly with the idea that Hunter Thompson is a terrible human being and maybe like like who's worse like him or fucking Oscar like (laughs) because they're both awful they both do completely terrible things they both treat people with an absolute lack of respect and humanity even though you're supposed to view them as the heroes and in some ways look at them as like sort of the voice of humanity in this plastic money obsessed culture of las vegas Mm. i'm not sure i agree with that but go on well i don't know i mean that's what i always thought when i was young that they were the people you're supposed to sympathize with and Mm. root for right um but i don't think that's true anymore like i don't know who i don't think there's anyone i think it's condemning everything yes like there's very few people in the movie that come out of it with any semblance of Like, uh, like 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 a, a gleam of of humanity or a positive you know feeling <laughs> there, from the viewer no there's like not christina ricci the maid right um what's her toby, name toby mcguire's the Hitchhiker. Not, <laughs> I, you know what <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's probably like, the. Mo- uh,
0: but there there's a deadness already like you know like a little bit like the second time he sees him like it's like there's already, like, in a couple days it feels like he's slightly different like already in the way that he acts. I don't even know if he makes it out okay.
1: <laughs> I guess it's left up in the air. But it's like, I don't even know if he's okay. Sven? You know, the guy that's the um concierge at the hotel? Sven yeah. is, is decent. Yeah, he's alright. But for the most part, it's just terrible human after terrible human. Mm-hmm. And there's no, you know, it's always loud Uh you never get any more than like 15 to 20 seconds of a song so you don't even really get a soundtrack you just get like snippets of music that are mixed with like score and like ambient noise and the colors are crazy and the fact that almost all of it is done in camera right like it's all done in practical effects for the most part makes it even worse because it makes it more like viscerally real you know, mm-hmm. like, you don't even get the the Uncanny Valley break of the fucking terrible CGI from around this time period. Gilliam's just beating you over the head constantly with, like, these images. Mm-hmm. And so, from that perspective, I think is it a, you know, it's a brilliant movie. It's an incredibly well-filmed movie. It's probably one of Gilliam's, like, five best films of all time. It's also really your breakout for i think both del toro and um uh depp really because who was really considering johnny depp to be like a great actor in 1998 you know
0: well it's it's, it's it's actually i mean some people were i think right like i mean like he was starting to get notoriety on a lot of things like um but it's like we'll talk about Depp because i think we have to like with this with this movie specifically we do have to at some point touch on Depp and take it back to that episode we did about Gen X actors um last year because I mean that's another like key piece of this movie is what happens to Johnny Depp like based on it I think um that makes it pivotal um I want to take up your point just about like in terms of like you know what's going on in this movie I think like I think you're exactly right I s like these these men are not to be like you know taken as protagonists or heroes or anything like that like in this like you're right it's it's dark nobody makes it out here like really um as as being like a protagonist um i think and i i, I think like what i well i think i know what hunter was doing in the book like you know if that changes or not in this movie i I'll have to consider in a second it's like and I think one of the reasons it's probably maybe one of the most important books of that generation is because of how quickly he identifies what is happening so by the time this gets published I mean he's writing it in 71 like it doesn't fully get published like really until like what 72 um some you know or so it's like it's like it's not long after like that um high watermark that he talks about in the wave speech that he's correctly identifying what happened with that generation and what has what it has become before most people of that generation realize what it has become it's like there is some there is an identification of the fact that all of that stuff that they were like you know um whatever fighting for were trying to be what ideal they were trying to become um was lost and lost very quickly and it turned into a generation well it's the term that he uses a lot especially in the 80s generation of swine um where they are now these kind of like half burnouts um it goes back to the dr johnson quote at the beginning like you know he who makes a beast of him you know what he who makes a beast of himself gets rid of the pain of being a man or whatever right um it's like these are there's a sympathy i think with the plight of the generation but there's an honesty to it where it's like he sympathizes with what they were trying and he even sympathizes to some degree with what they've become. But what they've become are largely pieces of shit. That use lizard, drugs. And, lizard
1: people and clowns.
0: Well, right. And there's a difference, right? There's a difference, like, I think, between the people that are just the normal everyday people. Um, It's like he still sympathizes. He still fucking hates police, you know? Like, in, like, the power structure and authority. Like, all those things that... that but it's like you know he himself, like you know, and people like Oscar, who were like Oscar is a big part of like you know like the Chicano movement and like on the west coast and stuff like that, like a pivotal member um before like all this shit catches up with to him, and he probably is like executed and they never find his body, but um because of nefarious dealings, but it's like he and like Hunter was at the cutting edge of all that kind of stuff, but it's like they're a piece of shit now who like you know have like you know because the movements failed they don't know what to do and they just do awful things um mm-hmm. so i think it's a condemnation of the generation and how they reacted to ultimately the movement failing and i think it identifies that very quickly like after the fall of the like, basically sixty nine seventy, um where it starts falling apart and um so it's like he still sympathizes but it's like at the same time he doesn't sympathize with like how they're reacting to it i think Uh, that's where that's how i've always taken the book um so it is interesting like you're you talking about like i because i never thought about it before i've just accepted it because like the the superimposition of war and all that kind of stuff um i mean i'm assuming what gilliam is doing is kind of maybe what we're used to now which is like we're we're always like have din right like going on like you know i mean like 24 hour news like you know like fucking notifications on our phone like this terrible thing has happened like this kind of thing it's like we're kind of used to it in different forms but it's like there was just the television and the radio so it's like I, i guess that's what he's trying to get across um is like how they're still living in this culture where authority rules war making power rules and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's, it's too much. I agree. Um, and it's kind of like uh revolting and kind of gut churning, but yeah. I, I don't know. I don't think I react to it as badly, but I think I'm desensitized to it because I've seen it so many times. I think that's has to be it. Like, cause I understand exactly what you mean by it, but I think I've seen it too many times.
1: Yeah, I think I'm just really, like, tired of that. And, again, I, I, I feel that there's... I think I'd be tired of it if I saw somebody do it right now. I feel like there's a lot of influence that, that comes from this movie and from Gilliam in general. Like, again, I don't think that Gilliam gets the credit he deserves for just kind of what he sort of inspired, I think, in a generation of filmmakers in terms of that blending of, like, whimsy and, you know, darkness or whatever. One of the things... so. I've come to realize, and I, I think I've—I don't know if we've ever talked about this—but I really started like thinking about it um, after once upon a time in Hollywood, mm-hmm. um, which to me is like totally the opposite of this movie, but on the same like sort of ideological spectrum. Mm-hmm. I think that I think I hate the fucking sixties. And I think I hate like almost everything about the 60s and what I think we're like still living with the consequence of the 1960s today. Yes. In the fact that a lot of people that are in charge of this world had their formative years, like, you know, during that time period. And, and it's like, and won't give it up. Yeah. The power. Yeah. It's yeah. like Hunter S Thompson. The character of Raoul Duke oh, in huh. this movie to me represents that whole like cosmic fool type thing like i'm gonna you know expose the crazy hypocrisy of the world through humor and by like being a dark mirror like almost like you know being like an actual like king's fool or whatever in medieval times and i think that i don't know like i think that they i'm trying to think how i can express this I just fucking hate it. I don't know. I, I, I hate the whole idea of it. I hate the smug you know fucking summer of love hippie bullshit that like none of those people have ever lived in their whole lives <laughs> since then um, and I know again I, I know 100% watching this movie that it's a condemnation of that. It's a condemnation of war it's a combination, condemnation of crass commercialism mm-hmm. Crass commercialism, and like the the district attorney's convention or whatever it is, the, right. the crime convention. Yeah, like all these people that are supposed to be upholding the law and representing like peace and order in our our country, and they're all a bunch of scumbags and hypocrites and. One special one, want spe- to make don't want to follow the rules and want their right. hotel room, yeah, and can't even can't even recognize an obvious drug addict in front of them. Has so <laughs> has seen it has seen on their pants, seen, right? <laughs> driving <laughs> on their pants constantly, constantly jacking off when he can't find someone to rape, right? Yes, that's that's, that's actually really funny. It's, it's <laughs> when he um when he looks down, right, scrapes fucking hilarious. Right. And the look on his
0: face is like oh, mm. shit. <laughs> um that's what I'm saying. I this, I understand what you're saying about how gross this it like it's stuff like that that like keeps me always returning to this cuz it's like I I laugh every single time that scene happens. How Holbrook like, you know, fucking is, is that who that is? How Holbrook um like like up there like ranting right. like, you know, and stuff like, you know.
1: Right. How you can how you can elevate from being like hip to being right. ruby to being cool. <laughs> Right? Yeah,
0: and then the question about Margaret Mead in that scene is like, right. you know, it's like,
1: well, I don't know, but it's
0: like, you know, if she got high
1: at her age.
0: It'd be one hell of a trip. And the fact they all just are sitting there, like, like belly what? laughing, like, yeah,
1: hilarious. So anyway, so there's things like that. And again, I'm not. It's not my my goal to like bury, um, fear and loathing because I think there's a lot of really. I think it's. it's it's filmed really well i think that it's the performances are fantastic again i mean i know that you know depp had been in Ed Wood and donnie brasco and whatever before this mm-hmm. but i think this is really and you you've said this a number of times that um that he's really just like this is the template for everything he does is jack sparrow is him doing raul duke and I think that's true. Like, I think that he when he's, pulled a when lot he's, of inspiration. Uh, if, you, if you
0: watch the ether scene, like, closely, a lot of those mannerisms and jerk in those, like, you know, wild movements, um, he incorporates
1: in The Sparrow. Yeah. Right. So, anyway, so whatever. But, I don't know. Again, it's just, it's one of those things where I can tell you why Pasolini's Sallow matters, right? And why it's the good and important movie but I will never watch that movie again and I I feel the same way here like I could tell you why that movie matters mm-hmm. but I don't want to I don't want to watch it ever again I don't think like I think I'm done with it yeah forever but I understand like completely because it is really well done you know it's that's a very iconic performance I think from both of them yes um,
0: Nisio gets ignored in this. Like, I think by a lot of people because of Depp's I,
1: performance, but Benicio I think his is... performance is better than Depp's to be honest with you. And maybe part of that is maybe part of that is just knowing Depp now for so long in our sure. life. Right? Like, sure. And through the and, whole... And
0: knowing this version of Depp, which is like we've talked about before, he gets infused
1: with this character for, yeah. forever. Like... And knowing Depp's personal life too much, and the weirdness, yeah. of it, and the eyeshadow, and the scarves, and the odd mannerisms, and the everything you've come to learn about Johnny Depp in the past ten years—that's yeah. kind of turned him into almost like persona non grata in Hollywood in some ways. Yeah, although I guess maybe he's kind of like reclaimed some of that. But I don't know. I, I was talking to. Talking to my my mother, I guess, tonight when I went to my parents for dinner and we were talking, to, we were talking about watching this movie. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about my feelings about it. And I was kind of telling her some of my thoughts. Because I was trying to like compose them somewhat before, sure. you know, you and I talked. And I brought up like Woody Allen and Polanski and even like Sartre or some other people, you know, that I've loved as a creator and then kind of soured on because of their their personal lives and i think that's true here for johnny depp like i don't when i saw this movie in 1998 i didn't have 25 years of weird johnny depp knowledge to kind of color my opinion of him to Mm -hmm. me it was just this watershed performance you know by this actor like completely transforming himself you know because i knew what hunter thompson looked like and sounded like i'd Mm -hmm. seen interviews with him and then now I watch it I just see Johnny Depp, you know, and I see the same person that Johnny Depp has tried to be for sure almost three decades, two and a half decades. I can see that. And yep. it's it's hard to reconcile. Whereas I think Del Toro sinks into that role so much that like you don't even realize you're really looking at him most of the time. Mm-hmm. You always know you're looking at Johnny Depp.
0: Right. I can see that, yeah I mean I mean fuck I don't know if you like del toro like fucking puts on forty five pounds for this to get that gut like I mean he does a lot of things like to his body like for this role, and um I think he has like the harder job in this movie of being someone who like he he has more range in this movie I think in terms of like the different roles he has to serve and i i I'll put Benicio's performance here, in like that elevator scene, and the scene when he like comes out of nowhere with that big ass knife that that they that that room service set up um for the limes. If there's but there's no limes because they don't fucking grow in the desert. Uh, and he's just chopping at that, and it's like the and I and I all credit Gilliam this for this too, but it's like I think Benicio like in this like with the 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 diner scene like all it's some of the most menacing stuff i've ever seen on film oh back. yeah
1: um it's, it, it's as uncomfortable as shitting henry right. or natural born killers you know like yeah. yeah i mean he completely transforms from like it's it's a really amazing performance in the sense that it goes from being Jovial sidekick to mm. menacing, heavy to psychopath kind of, yeah. And then back again. I mean, there's so many different like aspects to the the character, and it's right. It's 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 really fascinating to watch, even if it's really uncomfortable sometimes. But yeah, that um that Ellen Burstyn scene is uh super difficult to watch. I yes, it is absolutely. Um,
0: yeah, it's, it's really uncomfortable to watch. Um, and it's like, almost like that scene. And then it's like, I, I always like pay attention to that scene. It's always really hard to watch, but it's like, I do think Depp does some of his best acting in that scene where it's like, he's so desensitized to Oscar that, He's just sitting there reading his fucking paper and he's like so desensitized to like pain and suffering and like horror and like like he's just sitting there reading his paper and then it's like finally like he finally like looks up and like sees her and then like is like, Oh, I need to go. Like this yeah. isn't and then it's like that that idea like that he brings the plate back. Like yeah. <laughs> um because it's like that's the best thing that that's the only thing he could do in the scene <laughs> like you know in that sequence of events is 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 not take the plate too um like um i think it's some of Depp's best acting in the movie um probably in that sequence of like how he handles it but yeah. um but this, at the same time i do want to mention some of the things that i still find fucking hilarious like there is a lot of things that like sometimes in spite of myself, even I will laugh at like, um, in this, like a lot of the dialogue I'll laugh at, like, you know, with the hitchhiker scene, like there's stuff that like I'll laugh at. Um, I still find the white rabbit scene really funny. Um, again, it's a guy who's like wants to fucking die. Um, so it's not like, you know, conceptually very funny, like whatsoever, but like just the performance between those two and fucking Benicio flailing. (laughs) <laughs> um in that fucking tub like um like that's funny there's tons of stuff that I like use from this like either as analogies for things um ways that it's affecting my language yeah. like I'll use quick like a bunny um hmm. like a lot of times um swine is something that is like for 20 years off and on is like crept yeah. into my like language um there's a lot of little things like that I always use the throwing the change like with the little person I constantly use that as analogies for things um of like how I deal with certain things at work and stuff like that is like um like I don't want to deal with it so it's like I it's like that's the analogy I use I mean it's it is awful it's an awful scene it is like Mm. the most like inhuman thing that you could imagine and i laugh every single time
1: where i'm glad you brought that scene up because that was the first moment watching this movie this time where i went huh i don't remember like him being such a terrible person Mm. and then trying to remember like (laughs) Because I didn't remember that scene happening at all. Like, that was one of the scenes where I just had no recollection of it. Mm -hmm. It was really just kind of like... I mean, it's a horrifying scene, right? It's (laughs) disgusting. Yes. And that man is, like, just... And then they stiff him on the check. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes. Like, not only do they humiliate the dude, but they like deprive him of his his livelihood by just leaving without paying anything yes and they tipped him under a dollar probably yeah like, you can't see how much they threw yes. but it looks like like 60 cents or something
0: but it's like you know I, I, I use that all the time like where it's like you know um like I'll 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 do something at work like where it's like, like you know well, why would you like give in like that it's like you know and and I'll explain to people like have you ever seen fear and loathing like you know there's this scene in it <laughs> it's just like you know it's just that's just me throwing the change like you know at somebody like you know like away so like I make them leave um I make them leave me alone like I I use that analogy like a lot and I um I'll reference the I'm a criminal thing a lot um through the years um that that concept of just like admitting like up front of just like you know what I did it like I'm a criminal like lock me up um because that is a ridiculous transitional scene like that happens with Gary Busey um like but that that idea always sticks in my mind of like just like admitting like what it is that you are, and, um, and how it throws people off, like, that's always stuck in my mind, finish the fucking story is something that's corrupted in my language, um, I remember pulling that on Heaster one night at the bar, because Heaster was just, like, (laughs) getting off topic, and, um, but I, I use that, like, quite often, I think that quite often, I think that constantly, actually, like, um, when I'm talking to certain people, like, my mother, like I'm constantly in my mind. Finish the fucking story. Like, um yeah, constantly in my mind. Um Yeah, there's a lot of things that like have like infused themselves into like my psyche in some way. We were talking about this that. with the rest of the development earlier. Yeah. I just that. I just remembered another one. Uh Surf Some Vent. Oh Surf Some Vent, yeah. Uh, the old reach around.
1: Right. Yes. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um you know, you you know another one for me is yeah. I'm 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 not going to beat myself up over that. <laughs> You're right. Yes, right. Um,
0: yeah. Um. Not as high on the list of ones that we use, but um, I've made a huge mistake as has appeared quite a few times, like at um at different points. Yeah. Um. Oh, yeah. I
1: always I always say way to plant, and. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah so, I, I, I think that good. i think that a lot actually yeah that's a good one um but yeah just much we and, and the people that listen to our podcast regularly know that we use even if they don't know where it comes from a lot of things we use from our rest of the development we were talking about on um off air about how that's like kind of like affected our psyche in some ways like that show um the first couple seasons and i think similarly this movie is like affected my psyche um in a lot of ways um
1: so yeah i like guess I, I i guess i've really like not pulled anything yeah and this i movie.
0: yeah I um don't know. i watched it a lot during those first like four years like after it came out um what? and i was like reading thompson religiously yeah. so
1: you wonder something funny um, in the interim of seeing this movie, and now uh, I saw where the Buffalo Room, mm-hmm. and legit thought that part of this movie was in where the Buffalo Room, and then huh. it happened, and I was like, "What the fuck am I watching? That's not in this movie, and it's 100 <laughs> percent in this movie." I just right completely forgot. So, one last
0: thing that I I I, I like a a it's a cut that ha, like no, it's not a cut. I don't know what they would you would call that. The Debbie Reynolds scene, every single time, fucking kills me when fucking Oscar's arguing so much, like, you know, that, like... They know Debbie Reynolds. They they know Debbie Reynolds. Just um, let us
1: go in and do yes, and s- it's like okay, like
0: you know, you can stand in the back. You he can't smoke, you know, and, and like they're both like putting their cigarettes out and everything, and it's like they walk through the doors all like you know, and like Oscars like straighten things out It's like prim and proper, and they walk through the doors, and then the guy goes back to his little like podium,
1: and I mean, what is it like fifteen, it's a, like ten seconds? It's a jump cut. Is it a jump cut? Yeah, it's he he walks back and stands there. And like puts his hands on the podium and then it jump cuts to the two of them being like forcibly ejected. Is it a jump cut? Is there an actual cut? Like, that's what I'm asking. Oh, I I don't don't know. know. I I don't, I don't know if
0: there's an actual cut. I think it actually is just that 15 seconds later or whatever, they've already caused a fucking ruckus. And what I find the funniest is that fucking Duke has a fucking cigarette hanging out of his mouth already. <laughs> so it's like, they, imme- I think the idea is they immediately went in there right. and basically started taunting and like fucking Duke are already lit up a cigarette in that time um, when they're being carried out. And like, this the imagery of it, like, of them going in and then, like, you know, after all of that and then coming back out, being like, pulled by security with fucking Duke with the cigarette hanging out of his mouth is is funny to me um, every single time, just as a, like, comedic device um, Yeah, of what happens there. But yeah, there's, yeah, ton, there's tons pretty, of stuff like that that I still think is, like, really
1: funny. Um, yeah. I don't disagree. There's not funny moments in this movie. It's just... There's another movie that I feel similarly about. And I, I can't put my finger on it. Like, that we've talked about recently. And when I say recently, maybe in the past couple of years, where I've said the same thing, where it's like, I can appreciate this movie, I just never want to see it again. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, I don't know. i felt that way for a long time about Apocalypse Now, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like, I can f- firmly appreciate how amazing Apocalypse Now is. I just don't want to watch it. Right. But I think I've kind of softened my stance on that movie a lot in the past couple of years.
0: Well, it's funny, it's uh, not like Apocalypse Now, I don't know if I ever want to watch it again. It doesn't mean I wouldn't, but I don't know if I feel like I need to, like whatsoever. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Um, Alright, is there anything else to talk about here? What about any Christina Ricci stuff is really uncomfortable.
1: Just going through the characters here real quick. It really is. It's also uncomfortable because it might be one of the most uncomfortable things to me because she has the. So here's another good it's, it's comparison. Michael, it's Michael J. or not how Holbrook. Jesus. Yeah. Here's another good comparison to um Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She has that same Confused, like dirty innocence that the mm-hmm. uh, Manson girls have. Yep. Where Tarantino plays it to be objectively disgusting, but still is trying to titillate. He's trying to, like, make you feel disgusted with yourself by trying to titillate you. I think. I think the Gilliam just, like, accidentally makes her, like, super attractive by the way he dresses her and just, like, mm hmm. And then it, that makes you uncomfortable. I think if you have any kind of like morals, um, yes. Because it makes me really uncomfortable. I remember, I remember thinking like, I don't know how old Christina Ricci is in 1998. She's probably what like 18 or 19 at that she's, point.
0: She's, she's 18 or 18 or 19, yeah. Just
1: like she was born in '80. I don't know what when, but like her boobs like moving in that shirt, and it's yeah. like I don't know. It's just it's. And the fact that like they present her as maybe being like sixteen or seventeen years old, like they don't really ever come out and say, sure. yeah. But just the presumption that she's that young and that you know Oscar has tried to violate her or is like, can I can I let me ask you this? Of what, you, what your take
0: is watching at this time? Because I've always like questioned this. When Raúl sits there and has that conversation with him out in the hallway, because uh, he he's obviously like turned off by the whole idea. Because he needs to work or whatever, but I think there's like an obvious, obvious like you know, like the way it's played and a couple reference dialogue. He's he's turned off by the idea of it in general of what's going on. When he goes out there in the hallway and you know says all that, one of my favorite like Bencio like comedic things is like you know that's so that's so disgusting like ugh ugh when he's doing that ugh um, sound, but all the disgusting shit about like putting her in a hotel room and like, you know, selling her out to police officers and stuff. My take on that has always been, that was Raul going overboard with like what they should do in order to
1: see if Oscar would make her go away. Oh no, he's a hundred percent shocking him into the reality of what he's doing right that he's by... like almost
0: pointed out to yeah, you're a gross motherfucker
1: like so so here's the this is one of the few redeeming moments of Raul Duke as a character in this movie mm-hmm. is that he doesn't mind destroying someone as long as he feels like they deserve to be destroyed or he doesn't mind like turning in blind eye to the someone's humanity as long as he feels like they've done something to deserve that but he's not going to let the corruption of innocence happen in front of him no matter how like fucked up he is like he realizes that's the wrong path to go down and that's going down the path of the people that, and this is again why I think for the longest time I viewed them as the protagonists of this movie and that they were the ones that were like that you're supposed to side with like they're trying to uh, they're railing against the corruption and plastic and commercialized Mm -hmm. failure of the 60s as encapsulated by las vegas right Mm -hmm. like i think that's the point sure But that's not what she represents. She's just this innocent who loves Barbara Streisand. Right. And who, you know, he's taking advantage of as a grown man. Mm -hmm. And he's not going, like, that's like, that's his line in the sand, I guess, is he's not going to let that happen. He's going to protect that innocence because that's too much. Like, that's like a step too far. Right. Maybe a couple steps too far or whatever. Mm-hmm. But
0: that's how yeah. I view it anyway. Yeah. And that's okay. I want to make sure I, I, I read that correctly as he's yeah. going overboard to yeah, shock right. him. And to, yeah. I agree with that. Yep. Um yeah. yeah.
1: I think that's pretty much like everything. Um it's definitely something, and I'll say this. I think if you have never seen Fear and Loathing, you owe it to yourself to see it. I don't think it's for everybody. To me, it was a difficult movie to watch, but 100%. I think if you are a fan, if if you're a fan of Gilliam, if you're a fan of period pieces, I guess, or movies that kind of show an alternative view of a time period that's been probably over-filmed Talk in our lives about, yeah um it's yeah. it's definitely worth seeing and it's free yeah. if you have prime or i don't even think you need prime right for freebie isn't freebie just free freebie's just free yep yeah so it's on freebie so you got to watch yep. seven thousand sky rizzy commercials but at the end of the day like you ain't paying nothing for it so <laughs> right yeah and freebie is better than a lot of places you know well, all right so that. so let's let's talk about sky rizzy commercials okay I think Sky Rizzi has possibly the best jingle in like a long time. Do you know Sky Rizzi's jingle? So originally, I,
0: I mean, I probably do, but, um, I'm
1: going to. So originally Sky Rizzi was a dermatological medicine that was meant for psoriasis, but also for like other skin conditions. Mm-hmm. and the point of sky Rizzi is you take it and it removes these it lessens or eliminates these skin conditions so you yeah. can like be free to like show your arms and your body sure. or whatever so sky Rizzi's original jingle was nothing is everything and it was really catchy like the song and it would get stuck in my head mm-hmm So now Sky Rizzy has like four different commercials that appeal to four different demographics (laughs) Mm -hmm. and they have an R&B, nothing is everything, a country, nothing is everything, like an EDM, nothing is everything. And then a more generic, like wispy folksy, nothing is everything. Oh, uh, I know exactly what you're talking about now. Each of those commercials and you you, sometimes you don't even realize it's the same thing, but it's the same Mm -hmm. fucking song just sung in a different style with, like, different context to it. Uh-huh. It's so insidious. And I had, because I don't I don't watch television, you know, I don't have television in the sense of, like, cable, so I don't see many commercials, but Freebie and Tubi will get me every time with some mm-hmm. commercial. The other one is that AIDS medicine commercial is so fucking insidious. Okay,
0: so at least you get it, too. I thought it was making, like, some kind of, like, like, Taking metadata and like I didn't know what it was like. Tr- what was going on? Like and it's like, do, do, well, like, maybe it is. Like, like, do I do I something. have AIDS? Like, um, like, but um, yeah. So at least other people are getting that. Okay.
1: Nothing is everything. I
0: just found this like hilarious, like lounge version of um, nothing is everything, uh, on YouTube. The
1: Sky Rizzy song. Mm-hmm. It's fucking yeah. fantastic. That's why. <laughs>
0: Richard Cheese and Lounge Against the Machine.
1: <laughs> oh, uh, I know Richard the... Cheese. Yeah. I used to listen to Lounge Against the Machine. I didn't realize they were still around and doing fucking Sky Rizzy Sky Rizzy Ed. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: No, the commercial. Uh, the commercials are on Freeview are not that bad. Um, and like I'll tell you why they're not that bad. Like, cause there's actually less of them, like overall, and it's even it's even less so when you are watching a television show on there. So it's like many years ago, like I watched a show on Hulu and I was watching, I was like, God, I'm getting really annoyed by the amount of commercials on Hulu, like trying to watch this TV show. And I saw it was on freebie and I watched it on freebie and it was like half the commercials that is like time-wise that is on Hulu
1: when you have Hulu with ads. Yeah. Um, Well, it depends what you're watching on Hulu. So I guess if you're watching a television show, you probably get screwed. Right, right.
0: Um, It's probably more for movies, I would say, because like you know, Hulu tends to have like what, like ten minutes in, and then like you know, it depends on the movie too, but it's like thirty minutes in, um, and then like Uh, like forty-five
1: minutes in or something, or fifty minutes in or something. So we both watched the new Jeepers Creepers today, and my commercials for that were. Prior to the movie, about 15 minutes into the movie, and then about 15 minutes from the end of the movie, were the commercials that I got.
0: Yeah, some of some movies get three, like beginning, and then they get three, and some movies get two, depending on the movie on Hulu. But yeah, I think I got I got before and two with Jeepers Creepers Reborn or whatever. Um. Hmm. But yeah, like um, but freebie's
1: not uh, freebie's a good service. Um, it is. It's 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 no Tubi, but it's um. <laughs> I um, yeah. No, I, I, I here's too. the
0: thing is I think there's just as depending on the movie, of course. I think there's just as many commercial breaks, but I think there's less time with Tubi usually than there is with Freebie.
1: Oh, I just mean because Freebie, Tubi has like the greatest selection of all time when you consider you don't pay anything for it, right? I think you can still just access
0: freebie even if you didn't have Prime, right? You can, yeah.
1: Okay. Access Tubi if I did not have Prime, too. Hmm. What? T- okay. Same thing, hmm. um. Except Tubi's better. Tubi's the best. Tubi should sponsor us because I will sing their praises forever, whether I get paid for or not. So you may as well just pay me. <laughs> I mean, I would,
0: I would love for that to happen. I think this is the end of Catherine Hellman um on the podcast ever. You don't think we'll ever
1: talk about her again? I don't think so. So we got we've, um We've never talked about Brazil. Yeah, we have. When? I'll find the episode. Frank, we've talked
0: about Brazil before. I don't believe it. I was in the living room. It was it was early COVID. We talked about it, yeah. It was the same time what's the um French one that I had never seen before, that like, like a noir. I can't remember what episode
1: it is. For Rafiki. Um, no, no,
0: no, no. Oh. It was one that I had never seen before, but it's like a noir sci-fi, like you know, kind of. It's not post-apocalyptic at all. It's just like um, City of Lost Children. No. Um, it was black and white. Um, Alphaville. Yes, Alphaville. Whatever episode yeah. Alphaville was on is also number one was Brazil on that list. Um, whatever Dy- it was titled.
1: Dystopian movies. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, Time This has been talked about. Um, Brazil has been talked about. Overboard has been talked about. Lady in White has been talked about. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas has been talked about. Cars has been talked about. And if we can help it, we'll never do a Cars sequel. Um. So, the only other things would be somehow... Beethoven's
1: 5th. If- um she's not in that. um she is what she's in beethoven's fifth she plays crazy cora williams wilkins i mean we ain't ever talking about a beethoven movie Honestly, oh i did. see
0: it now okay they had a limited filmography and you have to click for the full filmography mm-hmm. on which yeah, is yeah. fucking awful um but i can't see that um once they I can't ever you see baby. you family plots you're never gonna talk about family plot um, and it's not worth talking it about. It's a, Hitch- a late Hitchcock movie, maybe it's last. Um, the Hindenburg. I mean, are you gonna talk about that? No, I
1: don't know. All right? Okay. Um, don't yeah. try and don't don't try and guess.
0: I'm just saying. I think Catherine Helms done. She's finished
1: on the podcast. Actually, you know what? <laughs> I mean this um sincerely. Okay. We actually may talk about the hospital someday. Mm. I don't know what podcast that shows up on. But, um, it's a really good movie. Okay. a really good George G. Scott performance and, um, one of my favorite Arthur Hiller movies, so. Okay.
0: All right. Have I ever seen anything by Patty Chayefsky? I just feel like I've always just heard about Chayefsky. Um... Oh, paint your wagon. Okay. Oh, a network. Gotcha. You gotcha. love that. Oh, movie. and alter. Oh, no, that's the filmography. Altered States. he just act in that? Okay.
1: That's what it is, I think. Just act in that. All right. Paint your wagon. Jesus Christ. It's on your list, man. You did that. It that's might true. end up on a list. I like. Paint your wagon? It's been I, on a list. I meant the hospital. Oh, okay. Oh yeah, I love Paint Your Wagon. Paint Your Wagon is the first time I saw that movie was one of the most surreal things in my life because Mad Magazine had made a reference to it and I thought it was a joke. Mm-hmm. About like um oh, Fuck who is that? That's um Clint Eastwood and what's his name? Uh Anyway, Singing together, and I thought it was like they were making like a Lee Marvin, yeah, yeah, Lee Marvin. And when I saw it for the first time and realized it was like real, anyway, I think it's got good songs in it, yeah. I remember talking about
0: it, yeah. Yeah. I was, I wasn't, I wasn't like, I wasn't impressed, like, but um, I think that's when um, Brandy stopped watching like hardly any movies with me that um involved the podcast was after. She watched Paint Your Wagon. Would she hate it? I mean, I don't think she was impressed.
1: (laughs) How do you not like one? They they call the wind Mariah. Um, I don't know, man. I don't know. And then in Manila Mancha, you got Maria Maria, but not the... You remind me of a West Side Story version of Maria Maria. Yeah. All right. Are we done so, with this? Is this we this are. Yeah. Over. Yeah. I
0: mean obviously we're talking about fucking paint your wagon. Oh. <laughs> I mean <laughs> gotta talk about the
1: greatest movies of all time. <laughs>
0: all right. Thank you for listening, everybody. Um uh and uh catch us next week. Deuces